0: Hello, JP. Hello, Tiago. So, um, for those unaware, which I think will be most people, uh, because I think a lot of my, a lot of my audience, I don't think it's too, like, uh, embedded into this like, Reveki Peugeot type community. So I think I think you'll be new for almost anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I know that you have a background in um, computer science, and then you switched to to philosophy um yeah. i'm curious to to hear you speak a little bit about the transition of how mm-hmm. you got from one to the other and also mm-hmm. i heard you say that uh you were exposed to philosophy when you were younger uh, but you were kind of disinten- disenchanted by it like you didn't quite find it super interesting i'm curious about what type of philosophy were you introduced to uh, and uh, why that didn't really catch your attention and also what philosophy did you get introduced later that that really got you going
1: yeah yeah that's that's a good set of questions it really ties together what happened is i was always interested by philosophical questions it just seemed obvious to me that we should care about questions such as what is the good and you know how can we get there uh because by definition the good is what we should do so if it exists then we should go there. So I was interested by those questions. Um, and I uh, I was exposed to philosophy uh, before college. We have our education system here uh, in in Quebec is like, after high school, we have sort of two years where uh, we do, we sort of prepare for, for college, and then we, we go to college. But the, the, during those two years, we have philosophy classes. And you know I had read some philosophy here and there just because I was curious, but nothing serious. And then during those uh, two years, uh, at uh, during those two years, I was exposed to ancient philosophy, to uh, some like Descartes, uh, and I, it was sort of a broad scope of philosophy. And there are a lot of good philosophers in there, in a, you know, such as Plato or Aristotle. They have lots of cool things to say. But the way it was presented mostly was. Was kind of just skeptical to me. Like, it was uh, like the the vibe was mostly of teachers trying to get us to doubt things, which isn't necessarily bad, but it didn't have a very good impact on me as opposed to the science classes I was taking. Because, you know, uh, from from what I was seeing in philosophy classes, it was just a bunch of of people questioning things, uh, you know, doubting things and never really getting anywhere. Whereas, in my mathematics classes, I was studying very precise things, but I could give proofs or what I was doing. I could know for certain that this was going on or this was going on. So the, the clash made philosophy not very convincing to me. Um, so it, it, it was probably also impactful that the math teachers looked just happier and like maybe, <laughs> maybe more virtuous than the philosophy ones. Instead of just doubting, they seemed like they had sort of their lives together and things were going on track. So I, I thought, okay, I, I'm still very interested by possible questions. I still want to I get to the idea of what is the good. Uh, is there like meaning to any of this? And uh, if so, like what is it? But it didn't seem to me like philosophy would really get anywhere because I just saw philosophers like spinning round and round, uh, not getting anywhere. So I, I decided to do mathematics and computer science uh, to study logic specifically. Um, I had been interested in in the idea of proofs so of mathematical proof and how you can prove things, and it was just like once I, I got the idea, I just Got really enamored with it. I did lots of proofs. I uh, I studied different formal systems, and I had heard about Gödel's incompleteness theorem. The idea that there are some limits to formal systems, but and you know, I was I was curious to go and explore this because it seemed to tie in actually well with the sort of philosophical questions I was interested in. Um, if, for instance, you cannot even know, like Gödel claims, uh, like like Gödel showed, I should say that from any formal system, uh, if from any formal system that is sufficiently powerful, you cannot prove the completeness or the consistency of your own formal system, then you cannot really be sure of anything like in, 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 in the mathematical, sen- mathematical sense of things. Like You cannot make formal proofs of very powerful things within mathematics. But well, if that's, that's true, then this, like, this cuts you off from a, a whole realm of possibilities within uh, like epistemology like it, it it really circumscribed the sort of proof, the the sorts of conclusions you can get to from mathematical reasoning from logical reasoning so it seemed like it was a good avenue to at least start like if i can see okay i'm not very impressed by the philosophers but the the mathematicians seem to be able to get to some somewhere solid And mathematicians even have proofs about where mathematics can go, so I should probably start there. So that's why I did mathematics and computer science in my undergrad. Um, So I had the precise aim of doing logic and mathematics and computer science is a good good avenue to do that because you have logic courses in in both and you can go very very abstract layers in both. The first uh, actually, when sort of mathematical logic exploded, it was a combination of philosophers, mathematicians, and computer scientists were doing that, like, in the early 20th century. Um, so people like like Frege, like uh, Russell later, like uh, Church, uh, Alonzo Church, like Alan Turing. So all of those people were sort of getting at the same sort of ideas, but from different fields, from, like, mathematics or philosophy or uh, in the early days of computer science. Anyway, so that, that's what I did. But pretty soon, when I saw the proof of Gödel's incompleteness theorem, it it answered my questions way quicker than I had thought it would. Um, I was expecting, because I had heard the statement of Gödel's incompleteness theorems, that any formal system, like any set of axioms and rules to manipulate those axioms, that is sufficiently powerful to uh, articulate basic arithmetic, any such system will not be able to prove its own consistency and completeness, uh, and will not, will not be complete, and will not be able to prove its, even its uh, consistency. I, so, I had heard this statement, but usually in mathematics, when theorems are this cool, there's are, there's actually a bunch of asterisks and notes, and it's not that cool in the end. But really, with that one, it was actually that cool. Like, it was actually that that, that convincing when you read the proof. It's been a while, so I don't remember the details, but you 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 could basically get to a, a paradox. In the, like a, you, you could construct, if, if you have a, a formal system that is powerful enough to articulate basic arithmetic, you can create... A, a sentence that is like the formal equivalent of this sentence is false and then this sort of just breaks everything so you, you the proof ended up being very convincing so they showed me right away that okay so i was not impressed by the philosophers because they didn't seem to be getting really anywhere but the mathematicians seemed to be getting somewhere so i thought oh i'll, I'll go to mathematics to mathematics but then the mathematicians like show they actually prove that mathematics is, is limited in its methods so this sort of and I was, that was just like one year in my, my into my undergrad, so uh, mm-hmm. I, I ended mm-hmm. up finishing my degree, but I, I thought that I, I should go back to philosophy because I'm not going to go a- and answer my thoughtful questions within mathematics. mathematics. Mathematics is obviously too limited for this. And now I have the proof, so okay, I, I've exhausted this possibility, I should go right. somewhere else. Right. And that's why I then went to to philosophy. Mm-hmm. And as for the the kind of philosophy that I found more convincing, uh, it was analytic philosophy. That's what seemed more what, convincing sorry? to me it. at the time. Analytic philosophy. Oh, analytic. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that was more convincing to me coming from a a mathematics background, because right. analytic philosophy was founded by by logicians, by philosophers who were interested in logic, by mm-hmm. mathematicians, and by uh, computer scientists, so it was, it was speaking the right language to me, and then over time, like I, I saw, I started from anal- analytic philosophy, and then my, made my way sort of back in time towards more and more ancient traditions. So now I, sort now there are elements of my thinking that, that go from, yeah, from from Heraclitus and the pre-Socratics all the way to um, modern uh, analytic philosophy. So. It started with analytic philosophy because I found it convincing, I found it solid, much more solid than what I had uh, seen uh, in my previous schooling. And then through this, I was able to go back to some of the philosophers that didn't seem convincing to me at the time, but now eventually through like careful study, became much more convincing to me.
0: Right, that's very interesting. And I find it funny that like I plan to get on the Gödel's incomplete theorems. Uh, it's funny that it just came up naturally so early in the discussion and uh, it's funny because i have I have a similar background to you although not completely similar first of all i was also very into uh, i'm going to say computer stuff in general and i wanted to get when i was in high school my goal was to get was to do computer science in in university as well uh not so much uh towards mathematics and logic. Cause I'm just not smart enough for that stuff. And it's just a bit too abstract and it's hard for me to have the, have the working memory to p- have it all at once and to make sense. So I have trouble when things are insanely abstract, like, like pure mathematics and logic. Uh, but I was very interested um, in computer science in general. And then I kind of mm-hmm. fell off that and I got into a fitness thing, uh, which I still, t- still do today. Um, but now I do it more as like my my career, uh, mm-hmm. but my interests have, have gone to to mostly philosophy and, and related areas. And I also remember the Gödel's uh, incompleteness theorems to be a bit crucial for me. Like there was, like they, they just almost completely broke down uh, my hopes because I was also in this path of, le- of like, of certainty. Uh, and this is especially related to well, we can say like reality more in general, but also ethics. Um, mm-hmm. Although I was coming from a slightly different background, then like I was more into psychology. Uh, but but within psychology, it's hard to not get philosophical if you dig deep, deep deep enough. So I eventually got there, and and that just completely blew me away and kind of traumatized me. Uh, it was <laughs> it was, and I, I first got an intimation of that when I started studying psychology and I started to get into well how cognition works, and all the cognitive biases and stuff like that, because when i like when I first got into philosophy, like you, you kind of start usually the, the the typical path which i don 't like very much is like you usually start with the Greeks and stuff um and like there there's always this this i don't know how to call it exactly, but like this view of man has like the rational man that is like just thinking through things and getting closer and closer to truth, and so I had this idea that you just get, you can just reason things out, you know? And I thought, okay, like, if you just go slow, then by logic, like, you can eventually build something solid and you can discover, uh, you can kind of solve uh, existential problems that way. Uh, but once you get in psychology, like, this idea of, like, the rational man, that just, just goes out of the window. Um, and then also, when I, when I saw that not only does psychology have foundation, but, like, logic itself like cannot have a foundation like that's just you can't go deeper than that like it's just you hit a wall so hard that you have uh, nowhere to go and that was also a very significant uh, breakthrough for me and that was also what made me more sympathetic to religion because even when I got away like even when I got more interested in philosophy uh, it was still a philosophy that was like very physicalist naturalist uh, in nature you know yeah uh, but but once you hit the the such a barrier like it's it's hard to keep that on um and so i, I find it i find it funny that we kind of both had that i don't know that shock of like yeah, just yeah. hoping for something real and unshakable and, shakeable, and it just turns out that just, that just doesn't exist unfortunately
1: yeah makes sense after watching very series as well because with you know our little Individual stories or sort of microcosm of what happened at a wider scale. Uh, you know, through the history of philosophy, the Greeks were actually pretty good. If you look at what they were saying philosophically, and the idea that okay, man was not transparent to himself. Uh, mm-hmm. you no know, Plato had this idea fairly well down, and they were, didn't just incorporate the like material materialistic science into their worldview. Like things didn't have to all have you have a basic contact with the world. And it's from this basic contact with the world that you can then build up more abstract thoughts. And eventually you can articulate propositions with uh, maybe axiomatic systems and so on. Eventually you can get there. But through history, we got further and further away from this. And we sort of all just tried to jam everything down into the propositional. uh, And you can see, like, maybe the culmination of this was Descartes, where he, he tried to just do... To just create his whole worldview from like just some a few basic axioms that he could prove within himself with just like closing his eyes and and thinking. Uh, and obviously this just unraveled and started exploding in in, uh philosophers after him. Mm -hmm. And now we're at a point where within more and more fields, there are tons of roadblocks that show show that we've reached a wall there and we have to start to go backwards uh look what people have done before us like we talked in mathematics about googles and Copernic's theorems you talked about psychology uh, in cognitive science uh, it, it, it cognitive science incorporates really all of those but uh john and many of his colleagues are doing the same trying to go back to more ancient philosophies to get some insights that will be useful to explain stuff that we haven't been able to explain in the recent decades. You know, the just the in philosophy of mind, there's a the huge problem of, of consciousness. How it is that you can get experiences from like material blocks of, of matter as we've started to uh, see them from the Renaissance on. Uh, so there, there's lots of blocks like this that mirror our, our individual stories.
0: Mm-hmm um have you read uh, the master and its emissary
1: no no i haven't read it like, i know just a bit about uh, ian McGilchrist, but i haven't i haven't read mm-hmm. that book
0: it's a very interesting book because it, it kind of lays down this problem of uh, reducing to the proposition which he equates with a very left hemisphere uh take on the world which is very um, it likes to box things in, and it, it focuses. And by focusing, it kind of loses the context and the whole, which is more right hemisphere. And he doesn't only describe that in the sense of how consciousness uh, tries to interpret the world by kind of these two uh, opposites worldviews, but he actually tr- he actually traces in history how those two views opposing each other have developed. And one of the things is that we have gotten more propositional, more hemis- left hemispheric uh, the longer the history goes on. And, and that's actually a loss in, 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 a lot of, in a lot of, like it has a lot of benefit, but it's mostly towards uh, technology and science. But like in terms of deep questions is actually kind of, we shot ourselves in the foot and he actually traces this quite nicely and gives a lot of good examples. And I think uh, I think that's part of the reason why, it's, it's so hard to relate to uh, really ancient philosophy it, because it's in, even I have a lot of difficulty with this, is that there's a lot of really good insights, but it's just that they are, written, they are written in a language that it's hard to understand. And by language, I don't exactly mean in terms of words, but it's just like the way they thought back then is very different than the way we think. And so yeah. it's hard to understand what they're getting at. It's like, although it, it, it escapes language, it's more like the worldview is completely different.
1: Yeah. 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 It's really, I think, a of of worldview. I, I don't know if it was the same thing for you, but when I like it, goethe sink theorem, and then went to analytic philosophy, I was sort of able to widen and widen and widen, like the, 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 the worldview that I had. Uh, I think it's especially coming up, doing lots of, Pure sciences like physics and mathematics and computer science. It's like you, you practice and practice and practice, seeing the world just in terms of its like basic building blocks, basic material building blocks, and then matter. Uh, so, sorry, Just those build, basic building blocks, and then you add like a few laws on top of them, and you try to see the world just as a construction of those basic building blocks. And you know, as you you practice and practice and practice this, and don't really notice the other stuff uh, like like the emotions, like the the fact that there are higher level patterns like human beings and not just fundamental particles with some laws, as you you always keep focusing on the lower level stuff, Uh, it takes a while to appreciate the the realness of higher level entities. Uh, So for instance, for me, like the first one was just consciousness, the fact that, okay, I can look at Tiago in terms of a set of particles that follows some laws, and that's sort of how I looked at people uh, a few years ago, back when I was studying pure sciences, because that's what I was practicing all the time. And I, you know, I was doing well in school and so on, so I had positive reinforcement to look at the world this way, actually. So that's what I, I was doing. But then, when I saw David Chalmers' good articulation of the hard body, uh, the hard problem of consciousness, it like made me think that oh, well, there's something else I have to Try to deal with. Uh, there's consciousness. There are also emotions. There are qualia. Uh, there's like the fact that I see the, the 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 green blue of your shirt. That I see the green plant behind you, and so on. Like th- those are stuff that I cannot really reduce down to the, the the material. And Chalmers gives good lots of good arguments for for this. I think. And so and through the course of working through this, sort of a new part of reality sort of popped. Into my, my consciousness, my, my worldview. All of a sudden, there wasn't just particles and laws. There was also like quailia. I didn't know exactly how it fit, but at least it was there. And then progressively, like there were still problems with uh, like where Chalmers gets. I think, but if you keep going back in philosophy, you can sort of slowly add more and more layers to the, this worldview. And things, yeah. And you as your worldview expands, you start to be able to go back further and further in time. Um, until to the point where finally you can understand what the Greeks were talking about. So, right. like now I think I understand what Plato was talking about when he was talking about forms and how the fact that you know, forms are, are real, that patterns are real, uh, mm-hmm. and that they they govern the 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 matter that they inform. But I like I wouldn't have understood this back when I fir- was first exposed to it. And I'm not sure, even sure that the the teacher that was teaching it to me like understood what. Yeah. Exactly. Either. Like-
0: Plato is is such a good example for what we were talking about because, like the theory of forms describes so well the type of problem that you get when you reduce reality to just individual bits, uh, like indivisible uh, forever, and and it it just kind of strikes you right in the face with the problem of universals, and the problem is that when you're taught that the the way that people view that is that that is that he's claiming that there's like a, a separate physical reality when yeah. there's like the perfection of, of of the cup and the table people are like this, this guy is just insane like this makes zero sense whatsoever and so it's like you're actually teaching a, a really insightful uh, problem and idea but like the people who you're teaching to don't have the worldview that will allow them to perceive the problem and perceive yeah. the actual value of what you're saying. And yeah, because like,
1: we're materialists. So we try yeah. to see Plato materialistically. So in, in addition to our world of matter, there's also this other world of formal matter that Plato talks about.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and was there any like really significant points that kind of bridge the gap uh, for you of like from the physicalists uh, worldview to so like a more holistic philosophical religious worldview.
1: Yeah. Well. Yeah. There were a few points. I don't think it's that long even to try to go through them at least quickly. In details, it would take forever. But like the 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 at the eye level, I think it's fairly simple. So yeah, from materialism to panpsychism, because of mostly David Chalmers. I think he puts the the hard problem of consciousness very well in his book uh, The Conscious Mind, like there are a few arguments we can we can go into them later if, if you'd like but mm. okay so and then once you you get the basic idea that okay physical science only describes how things behave but they don't really describe the the nature of things like if you take an electron uh, physical science can tell you how the electron will behave like it will give you equations that allow you to predict how the electron will behave it also tells you like, its mass and its charge, but like the mass and the charge of the electron just mean that if you plug it into that equation, you'll get that behavior. So even that only gives you behavior. So physical science always only describes how things behave, but it doesn't tell you about their intrinsic nature. And that's also true for even people. Like for you, Tiago, I could describe you physicalistically, presumably I could, you're a complex set of particles, and if I had a good enough computer, I could compute with all the probability distributions what you would end up doing. But that's just a description of your behavior. It's not a description of what you are and why you do actual things. Like, why do you behave this way? And Chalmers is inside. Actually, it goes back to a, like early Penn psychist from about hundred years ago, around the time of Russell and Eddington. OK, well, if physical science only describes to you the behavior of things, uh, we, we, need, we need a candidate for what is the intrinsic nature of those things. Like, Why do things behave the way we observe them? And a good candidate is consciousness. Because at the human scale, that's 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 our best guess. If I, you know, I asked you, Tiago, why you got up this morning uh, and did what you did. Like, I can try to describe it physicalistically. I can give you equations that describe what you do, but the real reason will be in terms of your consciousness, like of your your nature as a conscious agent, where you decided to do this and so. So, Chalmers, are, Chalmers argues. Well, I think that the physical science gives you the behavior of things, but the intrinsic nature of those things is conscious. And Chalmers then will apply this down every level of of being. So we had a question earlier about the intrinsic nature of electrons. Like, why is it that electrons behave the way they do? Well, you can do the same thing as we did for humans. If we explain your behavior in terms of your intrinsic nature as a conscious agent, we'll do the same thing as you you go down the ontological chain so that your your cells, your molecules, and your fundamental particles are all conscious. Though, of course, the consciousness has, has to get simpler and simpler as you go down those layers. So it gives you a nice ontology, and you know it's it's intelligible from someone coming from a materialistic worldview like where I was at that point. Uh, the bridge between materialism to panpsychism was fairly natural because I could keep sort of the same entities; I just add to add a layer of consciousness on all, all of them. So that was a, a good step towards expanding my worldview. And then, what happened is there are still problems if you if you stay there. Like how is it that my consciousness is a combination of the consciousnesses of, of my fundamental particles. Uh, like how, how is it that different consciousnesses can combine across, across those different layers? It's called the combination problem. It goes back to um, uh, William James, formulated it about 100 years ago uh, also. We can think of it at our layer. Like how is it that you know, if are, are are right and your consciousness is a combination of smaller consciousnesses, well, do we actually observe this? Like, is your consciousness a, a combination of some different neural networks? And are the consciousnesses of those neural networks somehow the combinations of their, their the consciousnesses of their neurons? And so on down uh, up to fundamental particles. It's not clear at first. And it's the biggest problem right now in panpsychism uh, in, in, in analytic philosophy. And the answer, to find the answer for this, I ended up looking at the works of Henry Bergson so it's, a, it's called a process philosophy, mostly. You also find the same sort of ideas in the, in Whitehead. And yes, the, they have good explanations having to do with space and time. And you find some of this actually right now in philosophy of mind. There is Philip Gough, who uh, has been uh, exploring this. He doesn't go quite as far as the process Penn psychists do. But still, the basic, there's a really cool move, I think, is to, the, the same sort of move that panpsychists made to put consciousness into, let's say, your whole body, uh, your cells, your uh, your molecules, your fundamental particles, you can do the same sort of move with space and time as well. Because physical science only describes space and time extrinsically also. Like you you have equations that describe to you how space and time behave, but you don't know what they really are. So the insight is to try to use this to solve the combination problem. Because the same way that our matter combines in space and time, and we can describe this extrinsically in physics, but there must be something intrinsic, in the same way that there's something intrinsic to my matter. There must be something intrinsic to the way my matter combines in space and time. What is like the intrinsic nature of, of space and time? And that's what Whitehead and Bergson were exploring. And if you pay attention to just your consciousness, you'll notice that it can actually go through different sort of layers of, of space and time as well. When you uh, when you act, you can you can see that your consciousness will actually when you choose. To act, your consciousness will, will sort of condense. It will get, uh, it will span, instead of spanning from, let's say, one second, it will span maybe five seconds. Um, for instance, as I decide to say the sentence, I can condense, you know, in one thought, I'll, I'll think of maybe the things I'm going to say in the next five seconds. And just for sort of one thought, so I've compressed all of this up into uh, like one. One thought, instead of having like my, my my mouth and all of the cells around this place will move a lot. Like there'll be tons and tons of of uh, oscillation uh, oscillations. If you were to look at the time in my my cells as I'm speaking these words, it would be extremely complicated. But at the scale of my my consciousness of my mind, it's actually very simple and it spans much wider in terms of time. Another way to see it is that uh, when your mind fragments say so you have a car accident. Uh, you'll be able to tell that your consciousness will fragment and it will shorten. Instead of having your hands on the wheel and knowing what you're going to do in the next maybe two or three seconds of, okay, I'm going there, maybe I'm speaking with someone and so on, as soon as you have the car accident, you can feel that your consciousness will fragment and all of those consciousnesses will be super short. So it's like you'll be pulled apart from different neural networks. Uh, there's part of you that's going to want to run away. There's parts of you that are going to want to go out the other person. There's parts of you that are just going to want to freeze. And all of those are very short. If you pay attention to them, they don't think very far ahead in the future. Uh, and they're all sort of warring against one another. So that's an example of your, your consciousness. Your intrinsic nature as a all-being as a organized with a certain temporal span in terms of its consciousness. And this shrinks down in, to a few lower consciousnesses, you can see it lowering down when you have this sort of a accident. You're pulled by different passions, you can say, by different sub-personalities. And this this pulls you sort of down in space and time. Um, so this was Bergson and Whitehead's uh, idea, found it quite good. And this was also a bridge to try and understand some of the things that religious people were saying, like uh, try to give some metaphysics to what maybe Pajot and uh, Jordan Peterson were saying, uh, in terms of like, are our, our different of personalities real? Are our, our I mean, our archetypes real? And so on. So, am I making sense so far before yeah, I go uh, for sure. further? Um, let me just.
0: So, there's a few. Th- First of all, I would just like to say that I think it's interesting that you got there through consciousness, which is a very, I mean, it's, it's a very obvious thing because obviously it's the, the biggest gap uh, that you have. Um, in, in a physicalist worldview, but I actually went it slightly different, which is related to consciousness, but it's not necessarily related to to the hard problem of consciousness. Let's say, and, mm-hmm. and part of what made me really start to see the world differently was when I started uh, learning about Heidegger, because Heidegger doesn't touch the hard problem of consciousness, and he doesn't have to. It, it's more that it's more the way you view at the world, regardless of the nature of consciousness, that it's very different than how our culture perceives it today. And so when I started to see, when I started to <clears throat> pay more attention to phenomenology, that's really when it started to open up to me because like, it's like, that makes a lot of sense, but that has nothing to do with how I view the world before and how everyone else seems to view the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got, and consciousness is also a huge thing, but I actually got it, uh, later somehow. Um, but but yeah consciousness is just it's it's the it's a type of it's funny because it's, it's the type of thing that um it's so fundamental but no one recognizes has fundamental outside of philosophy like if you ask a random person in the street it's like well how about consciousness well just my experience of the brain through evolution and that's that and well it's a bit, it's a bit more complicated I,
1: I i really wonder though if that's the case for because sometimes i've been surprised talking to people that they, they're not physicalistic at all. Like some people are the more new age sort of source of thinking. Some people think that they're like well, just minds true. or some mm-hmm. people are dualistic. Like I would be really curious to know like the real stats of like in terms of how people actually think.
0: Well, there's, there's some research in terms of, um, I believe at the very least of, I think of where do people fit in philosophy of minds. Mm-hmm. And there's also um, there's also a, a study that, that, I, that I find super interesting, which is uh, they analyze people's uh, categorization and philosophy of mind of materialism, dualism, and idealism. It doesn't have them psychism, unfortunately. And uh, they had a psychedelic uh, slash mystical experience, and they actually mm-hmm. analyzed again, and they actually see people just go through either dualism or idealism. And mm-hmm. that does have a baseline of... Of people, uh, obviously that sample is going to be biased. I'm not sure what. I'm not sure what their criteria is to recruit subjects, um, uh, but th- there's that. And about people not being physicalists, I think it. I kind of see where you're getting it, where, where you're coming from. That people might not fit there, but I think it depends a lot on your social circle as well. Like the more, I think the younger people are, I think the more they're prone to physicalism. Uh, mm-hmm. because um, be- because it's it's embedded into the idea of just science explains everything and stuff like that yeah. um and so if they 're secular, that even compounds more yeah. um and so there's and also something that I find interesting is that um it also has to do. Like even if even if it's not uh, like an explicit belief in physicalism, something interesting that I found is that if you go to people that are very related to arts, for example, like musicians, paintings, the painters, etc., that that ha- they are disproportionately not physicalists, even though they don't yeah. have it's not like they have a, a philosophical construct to argue their position. They they, they just intuitively know somehow. Mm-hmm. So that's also uh, interesting, um, and. I didn't want to get too much into bent psychism because my first episode was all about yep. it. Like, I interviewed yep. Peter something. I can't pronounce his name. He's yep. Swedish and it's so hard. Uh, yeah, you yeah I know, to... I know
1: you're, who you're talking about, and I, I don't know how to pronounce his name either.
0: Right. Yeah. Are you familiar with his work?
1: Uh, just a bit. I mean, I've watched some of his uh, videos. Yes. I remember he has an excellent YouTube presentation of a, you know, a talk he gave on like the basic arguments for panpsychism, and I think it's still like the format I like to use to present It's Like four really good arguments that list them uh, out awesome. very clearly.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, something, and I, I've been, I've I've dived in, into a lot of his work, even though I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself a panpsychism, but panpsychist, but I'm not, like I'm not a non. Than psychist either it's I'm more like an, an agnostic about it because uh, i find that every side has problems and i'm not sure exactly how to deal with them um but i've always been very sympathetic to it and i, and I like his work a lot especially he has also very interested in psychedelics and he tries to uh connect consciousness and and, and psychism uh with it and also he works a lot with whiteheads and stuff like that so i really like his work and something that i i liked when i first discovered you is that you were arguing for panpsychism. but i actually never found your argument before even though he's a scholar of panpsychism. He, he just goes through um other routes for his, and i found the i found the argument of like the explaining uh that that's we can explain higher level human phenomenon through consciousness uh, and not only description and if you flip it to a lower level of reality that there's an argument to be made there that's also what's causing it. Um, and so I, I've never seen him go that route. So I was, I, was, I was quite impressed I'm, when, you, when you did I, it. I,
1: I would just like to be sure what you're talking about. You mean when I was talking about higher level organisms? like a, No, no, no. Uh,
0: from, from the human scale to the lower scale, the lower scale okay.
1: being physics. Okay, okay. Well, yeah, I don't think it's too far from what uh, he says, but yet yeah, I like to put it the way I've done. I think it gets to the same idea though
0: uh hmm. well I'm not sure because I think it, it, from my, I might be wrong, but from from what i've gotten from him, his main argument well I think he has two main ar- not sure if that's separate okay well i'll just go through one of them that comes right now, which is uh first of all the just lays down the problem of consciousness, and that mm-hmm. that already is a huge Uh, benefit for psychism almost regardless of how you argue for it because if you expose the hard problem of consciousness then materialism goes away and then you have dualism but people which is funny because because materialism is so entrenched uh, it has always been opposed to dualism and so people yeah. are already opposed to dualism even though they hold a very weird position as well. but so once you take away materialism people don't want dualism and so they're, they're a bit more open to them psychism so he he, he usually does that first and then mm-hmm. the way he tends to argue is uh how, how do you explain consciousness and like the the problem that entails and then he tries to kind of Go well. It had to emerge at some point, and how, how exactly does it emerge? How exactly do you argue or, or prove that? And mm-hmm. then he goes backward. But I don't think he necessarily tries to um, put uh, like argue for an intention of mm-hmm. like an elementary particle per se. Like it's more that there's a rudimentary consciousness there that then gets bootstrapped up. Um, mm-hmm. and, and like I said, I don't want to get too much into panpsychism, yeah, yeah. but there is something that I'm, that I'm curious to hear your thoughts, which is this problem of uh, how consciousness emerges uh, into a unified consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I asked that to Peter and he didn't have, uh, as, as far as I understood it, he didn't have a good solution for it, uh, at, at least mm-hmm. based on Whiteheadian uh, metaphysics. Yeah. Um, and it's not like physicalism does either but I'm curious to how you solve that problem of, 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 of something becoming one. Because part of the thing that I, that I struggle with, pampsychism, is that in materialism, you have the problem of how does consciousness emerge. Uh, but then if you hold the pampsychist version, like the consciousness is taken care of, but then you have the problem of human consciousness. It's like, because, because human consciousness is special, to me, it's so special. Like the, the attributes is, are so specific that it mm-hmm. almost... That the ontological significance of it seems just as much as consciousness itself, and so you yeah. have that problem anyway. So, yeah. in your view, how, how do you solve that?
1: Yeah, I, I would actually like to start by making the the, the problem even harder. Uh, but this is, I think you laid it out well. You know, in in physicalism, you have the problem of well, how is it that like matter can somehow combine, like, like physical entities can somehow combine to create minds. But in pessimism, you have the problem of how is it that minds can combine? Like, how is it that simple minds can create uh, more complex minds? And that's the combination problem. I think it gets even harder if you consider evolution because, okay, so it looks like we can describe evolution in terms of just extrinsic behavior. Like, okay, so you have uh, forces, uh, I I shouldn't say forces. So, okay, you have a bunch of physical entities. like, certain particles, and they will, according to some laws, they will behave certain ways, and some of those ways will end up reproducing themselves, so that uh, some atoms will be created, and then from those atoms, some molecules will be created, and then uh, so on, uh, to the fact that, well, molecules will at some point, combine into uh, more and more complex molecules. At some points, you will get cells. From cells, you will uh, get, uh, you will get... Uh, Complex set of cells that will create organisms, and then it can get more and more complex uh, from this point on. But like the story I just gave you can be explained just physically. Like I didn't have to use consciousness anywhere in that story, so it doesn't it's not clear how natural selection would involve consciousness. Uh, but consciousness, human consciousness, is way too complicated to be just a side effect. Of natural selection. Um, there are lots of instances in biology where biologists would stumble upon like a biological structure. It happened several times when uh, looking at fish because fish have weird things in them that we're not used to seeing uh, in, uh, in, uh, in, in mammals. So for instance when looking at sharks some scientists found that there are some, some sort of a impules. I'm not sure I'm not sure how you'd call it that in English but they have like small uh, bags of cells that are spread sort of all over the surface of the, the shark and they're connected to the brain somehow. And like biologists had no idea what this could possibly do, but they knew that just because this is too complicated, that it has to do something. Like evolution doesn't just create complex artifacts if they're not useful. And so of course, biologists knew it. I think it's uh, Lorenzini who found that first. Uh, I'm not sure how you would call that in English. In French, it's ampoule uh, de Lorenzini. But, anyways, when, as soon as they found this, biologists knew, that, well, we have to look for the function. They have to do something. They're too complicated. And the same sort of argument is true about consciousness, I think. If you look at human beings, our consciousness is way too complicated to be random, to be just a side effect of something else. The same way that when the biologists looked at the, the, uh, the ampules, they knew that well, this can't just be a side effect of, of something else. Like, this is too complicated. It has to do something. The same sort of argument is true about consciousness, I think. I, I think This comes from a paper I read a few years ago, and I'll, sadly, I don't remember the authors. I could find it later and email it to you, but uh, I don't remember the name of, of the authors. And there are a few other instances of this where if you find something too complex in evolution, it's not a side effect. It has to do something. But I just give you a story about consciousness, And I didn't need to talk, uh, sorry, i just give you a a story about evolution that can explain the evolution of human brains, for instance, but it didn't have to involve consciousness at all in that. I could explain that, well, okay, some sets of matter will reproduce and some others won't. So it looks like I can explain the evolution of of human beings without consciousness, but human beings have consciousness. And uh, according to what I just told you, consciousness is too complex not to be doing something. So... Okay, so that's like the basic problem of the evolution of, of consciousness. For anyone who's not materialistic, you have this problem, because, okay, well, you can explain the, the evolution of man in terms of just matter. Well, then, like, if, if, if consciousness isn't just matter, then it has to do something, but we can't really find it. And for panpsychists, the problem is, okay, well, maybe for a at least you can put, like, the basic building blocks of consciousness into your matter, like, like fundamental particles of, of consciousness. so. They can combine into more complex consciousnesses, presumably, but why would evolution care? You know it seems like evolution only cares about how things behave and it will favor the survival of things that behave in a way that they reproduce themselves but why would consciousness care uh, sorry why would evolution care about uh the the combination of consciousnesses? Why would it happen to follow uh, certain like whatever laws? Explain how it is that consciousness gets combined why is it that evolution would, would care about this so I think this is a very deep problem and I don't see many panpsychists uh, mention it but it makes the the, pro- the problem you you mentioned even harder and to to try and explain it uh, I think you have to go slowly towards like neoplatonism or uh, a sort of metaphysics of form such as Plato or isomorphism like Aristotle you have to give more weight to uh, to forms, to patterns, like to to consciousness, and it's a bit why I, I like Bergson, which I mentioned earlier, because Bergson saw that problem. He was a like an early panpsychist, and he tried to explain the evolution of of consciousness among other things. And the the way he had to to do it was to say that you can't really just look at things bottom up of consciousnesses. That start just from the bare level of, of matter and uh, somehow combine and happen to create human minds. You will have to go top down as well. You will have to explain how, like the it's not just, so it's not just the many becoming one. It's also the one fragmenting into the many. Um, and and I think we have an experience of this. If I look at the examples I mentioned earlier, of let's say the car accident, when you can feel your in consciousness. Fragmenting. Uh, so this is what happens at our human scale. Of, we can see our consciousness fragmenting, but so so you have the one becoming many when your consciousness fragments. And then how is it that you can pull yourself back up together? How is it that your your many can also become one? And it's 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 a simultaneous thing. It's not just that the like the many will randomly become one, like one consciousness will just squash the other ones. It's as your three subconsciousness, let's say, like the the one who wants to run away, the one who wants to freeze, and the one who wants to go uh, help the other person. As those three are sort of warring against each other at the level of neural networks, at your the, at the level of your all being, you will also inform all three of them and uh, decide, to some extent, which one you, you you'll go with. So. So it's not like we have perfect control over this, and it still remains mysterious to some extent. I mean, it, it still remains mysterious, like the problem of the one and the many. People have been arguing over this forever. But I think the the deep, the deep nugget, and maybe it's something we'll have to take like for uh, we, we maybe it's something we'll have to take as fundamental in our ontology. How it is that the one and the many can interact? But like the sol- the basic solution to the problem of the one and the many, as best as we can understand it, I think is that. As the many become one, the one also becomes many. Like, it's not just if you, if you just take it bottom up, how different consciousnesses can combine, how different things can combine, you'll never really get up the ground. Even if you just take, a, let's say, a, just, just something that Bergson talked about, if you just take, let's say, two planets, like they're separated in space and time, but they're separated, how can they possibly interact? Like, how can two things, if they interact, they have to somehow be one? But how can two things that are really separate, they're spread out in space and time, but they, we know that they interact because you no know, gr- gravity happens, they, 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 they get closer over time. So how is it that things that are spread out in space and time can interact? How is it that the many can somehow be one at a our level? How is it that at the level of planets they're separate, but at the level of gravitation they're one. And you know it's, it's mysterious but we know that it happens in physics and we know that the same thing happens within our, our consciousnesses like. Our several our subconsciousnesses somehow can combine, and those it's something that I talked about a few times with in conversations with with uh, John Rovecki. We have to always look at sort of emergence, how the many can become one, at the same time as we look at emanation, as how the one becomes many. So it's a, a top down and bottom up thing that happens at the same time, and I think, like, so this is I don't know how satisfying you you'll find this because. As I'm as I'm speaking this, I find that we have to see this more as as fundamental in our ontology. Okay. A way of saying it is let's say you're, you're a materialist, like your, your basic ontology is okay, you have fundamental particles, and then you have laws for how those different things will combine. So it's you, you try to do it all with just emergence of how different things can just combine together. And then you have mysterious laws that bind them together, but you, you sort of don't don't try to go too deep into that. Uh, another kind of ontology would be a way that at least a lot of people understand Plato. And it's probably what Plato actually said. It's more, much more of a just purely top-down thing where you have forms, you have just patterns, like you have the, the one. Uh, no, I shouldn't say Plato. I should say it became clearer in Plotinus, the Neoplatonus. But it's the opposite ontology. Instead of having matter from which things emerge, you have the one, you have the absolute unity, like the the, the pure principle of unity. And from this one, will emanate multiplicity. Uh, so, like for, from the one, they will uh, emanate the, the intellect, the soul, and then like the world. So he, if, if I want to take the, the same example of the planets, like for the, in terms of Neoplatonism, you would have somehow the principle that planets interact together, like maybe you have the, the law of gravitation, and from this law of gravitation, they would emanate somehow planets that interact gravitationally together. So it's, it's the, the opposite kind of mythology from what Plato had, and uh, sorry, from uh, what the materialists have. And they have opposing set of, sets of problems. Uh, from materialism, you have to explain, well, I mean, how is it that the, okay? So you take basic in your ontology that the many become one, but it looks kind of like a miracle. Like, why is it that the, that the, the many would actually behave this well? Like, why, why is it that uh, two planets wouldn't just stay apart? Why is it that they would somehow interact? And this, I don't think the materialist has good answers to this. He can point to the laws of physics, but I mean, of physics bind things together, but we don't know how, so it's not, it's not great. And in terms of the, the if you're a neoplatonist, then you have the opposite problem you don't really see why the one would become many. Like, this is this is weird. Like, obviously, obviously, the one has to become many because we see things in the world and they're separate. Like, my hands are separate, so things have to become separate somehow. But how is it that, that this can actually happen if you're a neoplatonist? Like, why would the one become multiple into something else? Like, how, how is it that the that the one can become made. So I think the solution is to, and this is what, like the, the you can see the Christian Neoplatonists do. I think it's the sort of thing that Jonathan Petrol talks about on his the channel. The, thing, the sort of thing that uh, uh, John Verveke also talks about. You can see this in several figures in Christian Neoplatonism from uh, lots, of, lots of the uh, Eastern fathers of the church. You can also see this in uh, John Scotus Uh It's more in, in the West was a, a monk in like the ninth or, 10th century, I believe. But, and you can see, like, glimpses of this in Bergson and Whitehead, I think. But the, the idea is that instead of having, like, as the, the materialists, you take just bare matter and somehow emergence, or instead of taking just Neoplatonism, where you have the one, and somehow emanation, you take both. You take, like, the basic principle is both that is, is to actually identify emergence with emanation. If you look at one thing bottom-up, it will look like emergence. It will look like miraculous emergence. If you look at one thing top-down, it will look like miraculous emanation of the like, one becoming many. But instead, like, the move is to identify both. It's to, okay. We can only look at them like one at a time. We can either look at just how the many become one or how the one becomes many. But they actually occur both at the same time. And like, this sort of combination is fundamental. Right. So, so I just said a lot of stuff, but <laughs> yeah. So, I'll be curious to see if you think it makes sense.
0: Yeah, that that was good. I've heard you say it before, and I think it's 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 quite well put. And uh, I find it especially funny how how the problem of 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 top down is is I think a lot of very hard for people to understand because they often point up to laws, but the laws don't really they they don't really have much explanatory power because. Because then you have the problem of of how those things come to be, and it kind of, i think that 's one problem about materialism in general is that for a lot of problems there seems to be answers it 's just that there 's problems with those answers and people won know uh, <laughs> but but it gives like a confidence that that, that there's a, that there's an easy answer when a lot of times it isn 't um, and i think like this 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 um, i don 't know how to call it exactly but this uh, this ability of 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 being to like go up and down, I think it's mm-hmm. mostly easily seen uh, in personality because everyone has uh, phenomenological access to it. And I think the psychoanaly- psychoanalysts kind of nailed this down quite well, which is really old. It goes back to Plato, but they, they, they articulate it in more secular uh, terms. And for example, s- something that really opened that up to me was Jung, uh, but it's a shame that a lot of people don't don't like those figures anymore they don't like those ideas because it's associated with like the pre-scientific state of psychology uh and so people was like oh people had these ideas but it was like a primitive thing that doesn't apply anymore uh and i think that's a shame and i think and it's not it's not quite that they're wrong because it is a pre-scientific state of psychology and they were trying to do psychology but it, and i think there's value in trying to keep psychology very scientific because there's a lot of benefit that we've gained from that but the problem is that what they're trying to do is is so philosophical that I can't say that it's not psychology but like it's it's also philosophy so what I wish would happen is that they would just they have the ideas that were the worst source of psychology and then people would take them more seriously because don't have this like bullshit alarm of like pre-scientific ideas that don't matter anymore. Uh, and I think that for me, that was a great introduction of, of how these, these things can come together bottom up or, or, or top down. Um, so something I'm curious is that you focus a lot on metaphysics and how exactly do you view your metaphysical metaphysical substrate supporting your symbolic worldview? Because, for example, Pajot, when he talks a lot about, um, and this is going to be hard to talk about because I'm not sure if people will understand very much, So, so let's try to... Secularize our language as best as possible so that, so that some people don't don't get lost, although sure. or, although it will be hard. but my question is what role does metaphysics have in your cosmology because for example Bajot when, when when he talks a lot about what he talks about, he appeals directly to your phenomenology, and a lot of times metaphysics is is completely irrelevant, and that that was also uh, shared. Uh, through many other people throughout history, for example, uh, Buddha explicitly said that metaphysics shouldn't, they shouldn't matter, or at least they shouldn't be considered. Like no matter what the metaphysical substrate of reality is, like the, you can still have a symbolic understanding and you can still have uh, an ethical system and the way of navigating the world. So, so what need do you see for metaphysics and how does that play out?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, one thing I've heard is that we always bring our metaphysics to our practices, to our everyday lives. So some people have more articulate metaphysics than others, but we always bring some sort of metaphysics to what we're doing. So we may have to do metaphysics at least to at least to defeat our old bad metaphysics, like to at least refute our bad metaphysics. And I, th- I think that's true. I don't know if more than that can be very useful. Um, but for instance, if you're, uh, we talked about materialism earlier, the fact that we were both materialists, and then because we ate problems that had metaphysical import, we ended up refuting that materialism. So we had to do metaphysics to get to a point where we could have better, pra- even just better practices. In, in the case of symbolism, symbolism doesn't even make sense. No. Symbolism can make sense if you're a materialist, but it's not gonna be very important. Like all of psychology becomes mostly an illusion if you're a materialist, because all that really exists is matter following certain laws. So, you know, our perceptions, there are people who try to just completely eliminate consciousness, like there are materialists, mm-hmm. like the churchians, who try to eliminate consciousness. Although you, this you...
0: conversation is very hard because like when we say that's, for example, that materialists, uh, reject psychology. The, the, the problem with this is that they do in the sense that it's coherent with their worldview. But the problem is that doesn't often actually happen in real world. Like most people do not uh, reject psychology. They don't even reject their phenomenology or even a symbolic understanding of reality. Or even They still have it. It's just that it it's not very coherent to their position. And then when they're pressed against it, they kind of have to wrestle those things together. And And for them, materialism always comes on top. And they don't quite understand how putting that on top of their ontology kind of brings other things. So we have to be careful when we, when we say that materialists believe certain things. It's more like their belief implies those those.
1: Yeah, well, another way, way to put it is that it makes their symbolic practices much weaker. Uh, mm. Because it's harder to take symbolism seriously if uh, you have explicit beliefs about the fact that matter is primary and that you cannot really trust your psychology. Like, because binding with the the rise of materialism is the fact that our mind, our perceptions, our consciousness deceives us. Uh, And you can see this starting from like from Galileo and Descartes and so on. And then it became even clearer in Kant, like the idea that we're cut off from the world, like our consciousness gives us no sensations, but it could be just an illusion. Like Descartes goes through a, like cloud experiments where when well, I could imagine that uh, maybe I'm asleep, maybe I'm uh, my mind is just being manipulated by a demon, maybe uh, like he or he thinks of illusions where maybe I could just be seeing like uh, wax mannequins and so on. So he bind with the rise of materialism is the fact that well the world is really made of of matter and fundamental laws. And sort of my consciousness is is maybe like an interface in my mind to access this. But It doesn't make our psychology as important as if you're Plato, for instance, and your mind really gives you direct access to forms and it's the forms that make the world. Do you see a bit where I'm going with this?
0: I am, but I'm curious exactly because I understand what you're saying from the point of like more typical Cartesian skepticism. But when you mentioned Kant, uh, I I want to clarify something exactly because how exactly do you see in a more Kantian perspective of like having a, a priority framework that partially blinds you to the thing in itself yeah how exactly does that conflict with a symbolic understanding
1: well think, let's say with, with Kant because our perception is just a uh, sort of pre-built it's, it's a pre-built way in which we we'll look at the world and we don't have things we don't have access to the things in themselves symbolism can tell you things about your consciousness about your interface with reality but it doesn't really tell you about reality itself. You see what I mean? Uh, you'll be able to know that, let's say, uh, we have certain archetypes uh, that allow us to understand, let's say, why we were so enthralled by, uh, let's say, heroic myths, why uh, we look uh, highly at pictures of, let's say, the, the virgin mother and her child. While we have archetypes that tell us about, our interface, the way that like, I don't remember how Kant called it exactly, but symbolism maybe can tell you about the structures of your consciousness, but it won't really tell you about the world. And that really undermines your your old symbolic worldview, if you want to see it this way. Because there's always a risk that, okay, I mean, I'm learning some things about me, but I'm not really learning things about the world. So I? I see what you're
0: going, but I'm not sure because because I. Because I actually view it the opposite because because I understand what you're saying that if if we're if we're seeing reality in the sense of how it's filtered by consciousness, then then we're not apprehending the real world um, and I get that, but I think that like a kantian uh, version of reality actually helps symbolism at least to me almost in a positive manner because it's it highlights exactly the interface that you have to navigate the world in, and then you can discover that. Now you can always say that, well, it's not showing you the real, real world, the objective scientific world. But I don't see how that's relevant for symbolism. Like you, you can say you can say that your your symbolic that your symbolic uh, view of reality. Uh, is actually ontological inferior to a scientific worldview. And so, which is kind of what science is is trying to do exactly. We're trying to transcend our our filtering of the world, not only perceptually, but cognitively as well. So, but I don't see that necessarily being the fault of the Kantian a priori framework. That's just a problem of your ontology of what to prioritize. So when I think about Kant, I actually think that helps symbolism because if you're framed... By, by this by, by consciousness and how you apprehend the things in themselves then that's that reinforces the idea that what matters is how you s- see things because you're bounded by them mm-hmm. and so you can always a scientific uh, science can always say well we should try to see at the world the world but then i would say that then that's the problem of how they're prioritizing things and not necessarily um the, pro- the problem of of the gap let's say you get what i'm saying
1: Yeah, I think I have an idea of what you're saying, and you know, the sort of not everyone has the same problems. Like not everyone is uh, is startled by the same same facts. Not everyone deals with the same metaphysical problems. I know. So, so for you, for instance, doesn't seem to bother you that uh, symbolism could be telling you just about your interface and not about what's behind the interface. but it does matter for a lot of people, and I think like it's something that maybe I, I think for sure John would, would know more about this, but I do think I remember him saying in like some of his lectures that one of the things you know he goes through the whole history, including uh, to Descartes. and at some points in the series he talks about the fact that one of the one of the, the ways in which people Talk about the lack of meaning in their lives is the fact that they're they're cut off from reality. Like the fact that their selves is not in contact with the world. So for instance, John will talk about the fact that we lost the contact epistemology, which you add, let's say, in the ancient Greeks. And with uh, Descartes and then Kant, we cut ourselves off from the, from the world. We don't have contact with the world. We have contact with our interface, but we don't have contact with the world. And mm-hmm. that is a a source of problem for people. And Okay, so so that's one thing. The other thing is I don't see symbolism as just a practice to, let's say, live a... I don't see this just as a practice to learn about myself or uh, to even live, even just live a better life. I also see it as a way to get into better contact with reality, not just understand my interests better. And if you read lots of I see that the Christian Neoplatonists, or even just the Platonists themselves, or, or Plato as well. But Plato uses myths, for instance, the, the 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 classic allegory of the cave, but he wasn't talking about this to talk just about our psychology. He was talking about this to get people to have a better grasp of reality, to have a better contact with reality. And if you're a Kantian or a materialist, you're not gonna go this far. You're gonna be able to say that, well, symbolism or myths like the myths of the cave, they allow you to get a Maybe a better understanding of your psychology, but not of the world. You see you see where I'm going now? I get it, I get it.
0: <sighs> Let me think about it for a second. <clears throat> because like I, I get especially when you mentioned the allegory of the cave, I, I do get what you're saying. But, but the problem is I think it's first, first is, I think is the problem of what i already mentioned, which is what you prioritize in gerontology, because you can say that, well, you want to, okay, you want to get touching into reality. And that's like, we can call that a universal human drive. And, but, and, and, and so we can see the Kantian view has, has separating us from that. But then we have to ask one, what, what, what is reality exactly? Because. Because if you, if you say that uh, symbolism is not, I, I don't quite like how you put it that it's more a, a psychology thing. Because I don't think that's how I view it. I, I view it more as, you know, in a sense it's psychology, but it seems misleading because it's 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 reality has you experience it, and that does not, not necessarily mean that it's that it's misleading. But what I wanted to get is if the drive for Reality is is fundamental, and that reality, uh, and that reality would be beyond the interface. So the thing in itself, would you say that that drive includes uh, material like every, in, every complex descriptions of the material world? Would that because that seems, in your view, as far as I understood it, that would be included in your symbolic interpretation. And, and I don't see how that makes sense, because then you'd say that a symbolic understanding inc- includes the ever more complex description of chemistry. And I don't think that's the case.
1: That's a good question. I don't know if, actually, there's in a sense in which science, including like chemistry, does fit within a symbolic worldview. Um, it is a place where you do, OK, so maybe I can even just try to put in a few words what I think symbolism is. Uh, I think symbolism, symbolism is the study of the points of contact between different layers of being, uh, between potential and actuality, and this will occur at different levels. So, in the case of, um, okay. one, one symbol I like to use all the time is the, the head. Like, the, the head mediates between our body and our mind it layers, it, it, it mediates between two layers of reality. Like all of my different members, they're separate in in space and time. Um, they're united by my head, and somehow they this all turns into like perceptions, uh, awareness, uh, so consciousness. So there's there's my, so my head is a symbol because it mediates between two layers of being. It mediates between the the material. And the mental. So we don't have to get into the present metaphysics, but we have to take those two levels seriously, at least. We have to take the idea okay, that there's a mind, there's consciousness, and there's also a body, there's matter, and my head mediates between the two. And then you can study all kinds of things this way. Like you can study s- stories, for instance, the story of a hero can tell you how like, one person can mediate between, let's say, the individual members of his society. And the society as a whole, like the way a hero will pull a whole tribe together, is the way in which we study the hero because he's the symbol of the community, is what mediates between the individual members and the community as a whole. Between, let's say, you can call it the body of the community and the mind of the community. Between the, the patterns that actually hold within the community. So, I think that's what symbolism is. When we study stories, we're studying like the symbols between the layers of being and we're trying to learn about this so we can apply it in our lives as well. And if, we go, if I go back to chemistry, I think there's, there, there's actually a sense in which doing chemistry is studying symbols. You're, you're, you're studying, let's say, the, the, the forces or the atoms or the molecules that bind individual atoms into constituents. Uh, you're, you're mediating between the atoms and the molecules. You're mediating between the individuals and the group, the individuals, uh, so, so the many and the one. And in that sense, I do think that even chemistry uh, is part of symbolism. And I actually, do when I now that I think of it, you know, I I do often use when I talk about head-body symbolism. For instance, I have done I, I, in a, in a blog I, in a blog post I posted on the Symbolic World blog uh, with Jonathan. I I have used the example of cells and of uh, uh, molecules and uh, fundamental particles to talk about head-body symbolism. So even that does fit. Uh, Within the symbolic world, but now, oh, go ahead.
0: I'm sorry to interrupt you, but but um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that's exactly what I was trying to get at, because because for me, how I would interpret what you said is that symbolism permeates all levels of reality, and that includes that includes the scientifically real. And, and, and we, can, we can see symbolism there, but what I was trying to say is that I'm not sure if that, that level, the, 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 the scientific description, if that's a requirement, that the ever more in- complex description of the world, if that will help your symbolic worldview. Because what happens is, okay, so symbolism permeates all levels of reality, okay, fine. But would you say that your understanding gets significantly better by, by having more and more knowledge of, of the bottom level? like Would you say that the, the church fathers would have a better understanding of the symbolic worlds if, if you gave them a, bo- a book on physics?
1: Yeah, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I think, OK, so I do think that studying the symbols at the lower level of, levels of being will get you a better understanding of symbolism as a whole. But it doesn't mean that's the optimal thing for you to study either. Uh, so it's it's possible that, okay, maybe the church fathers, they would get something, I think, from learning about chemistry uh, and fundamental physics. But still, like I think maybe after a few days or a few months or at most a few years, it would still be more worthwhile for them to go back to stories, to studying the symbols that occur at, at the society level. So I think that, for instance, the era of materialists is not the fact that you know, they, they look at the symbols at the lowest levels of being, at like our particles, how the, the, it's, it's, the problem isn't that they look at the lowest levels of matter. The problem is that they almost only look at those. Like, the fact that they don't take the other layers seriously. I think it's more a, a problem of emphasis than a problem of, like, studying this precisely. You see where I'm getting at? Yeah. And I think it's important that your symbolism can reach to those lowest levels because it gives you a, a contact with reality. Like there's a deep continuity between what goes on within fundamental protocols and myself and the cosmos as a whole. So I, I get a, a contact and it's one of the things that Verveke says that is important, even just for people to have the sense of meaning in their lives, they have to get a contact with, like with the world, with each other uh, and themselves. Hmm. I
0: might be repeating myself a bit, but the, the issue that I have with that is that I, I see those lower levels as being an expression of symbolism that you get at, at the level of experience at the individual level and at, at, at the social level. And so you can always say that, well, okay, well, that permeates at the bottom level. And you can even say that you learn a little bit from it, but I see that learning has in just just discovering the patterns that you knew from higher up. So it, I, I see it more as, I'm um, not exactly sure how to articulate it. Like it's trivial? It, not sure if I would say trivial, but it's more like recognizing what you already knew from the higher levels. And I think that the higher levels is what what one should look at because that's that's where
1: life is. That's that's how you interact. Uh, mm-hmm.
0: but do you world. think like
1: do you Okay, so if you hadn't thought about this previously, like do you see value at least in recognizing that that it works? Like we do like- you like but the I symbolism can...
0: permeating down, that works, yeah, or something else. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'll, the... I'll say it works.
1: Uh, I, I'm just because if we can think of someone like there are people who who have a hard time seeing symbolism seriously because they have these two views in their head that are that are competing. They can see the world like like Descartes or Galileo or Kant. Like somehow there's a mathematical world out there. I I know that's not what Kant said, but that's what Galileo and Descartes said. That somehow there's a mathematical world out there. I can know it by mathematics, I can't really know it by my consciousness, and maybe symbolism can tell me about what occurs within my, my being and also within uh, my interactions with others and so on, but this worldview is undermined by the competing worldview of seeing the world just with mathematics, just with like fundamental particles, and until you can sort of reunite the two by saying that symbolism actually permeates all of those levels, so you're your, your symbolic view is sort of undermined un, until you do this. So I, I agree that you know, it's not very difficult. Once you see the patterns at the higher levels, it's not very difficult to map it onto the lower levels. So you do recognize something that you already knew, but at least it's that it has the value of not you being torn apart by two different ways of looking at the same things.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Got it. Um, yeah, I think that makes, that makes some sense. I mean, it's a bit fuzzy on my mind exactly how how much there's a need of like complete overlap and um it's not quite overlap it's not a right word but of like a, a comp- continuity yeah a continuity between two world views um but that gets us into some other problems um that uh, i think that will take too long um but, but I, I appreciate you explaining it further and i think i think i got a lot of out of it um so something else that I wanted to talk about, which is something that I've been struggling for a long time, and you have a, a good intuition for this type of thing, so maybe you'll help me clarify it, which is like reality seems to be very complicated to define because it's not it's not only they're here now, but it, it, it extends in, in, in all directions. Mm-hmm. And there is stuff that is not real in the typical sense that can bring something real, uh, which is, and I think the the proper way to view something like that is a story, for example. So for example, if you tell a story that contains um, a certain narrative that has, that has an idea inside of it and the story isn't real, but how the story one eliminates your worldview and two, how it affects your behavior like that is real, and so it's, it's hard to divorce it's, it's hard to tell the story isn't real when the story causes mm-hmm. your behavior yeah and that's something that I've been struggling a long time when I initially got into more religion stuff, because mm-hmm. this like it, it's something that Peterson talked about, which I think a lot of people a lot of people know what he said, and a lot of people repeat it, but I think no one actually understands how crucial it yeah. is, which is it's, it's real if you act as if it's real. And, it's, and, it, and f- for someone like outside of these topics and, and someone not quite familiar with this view of it, looking at the world, like that saying just looks just bad shit insane. Like it makes no sense. Like, but w- when you start realizing as reality has potential and, and that's how you bring that potential depends on, on ideas, and that's and then especially if you get into a more like uh, like a more platonic view where where ideas actually have real ontological status, mm-hmm. um, then that gets just insanely complicated. Uh, and so and and I think, and when I really started to take Christianity seriously, uh, and religion seriously in general, it was when I got that insight that there's there's stuff that if you hold them as real that makes them real, but it's it's. Like, I have an intuition of it, but I can't articulate it properly in my mm-hmm. head. And I was hoping if you, if you could give me some insight on it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think it, a, a good way of seeing it is, okay, so a, a story is just a more abstract level of being. Uh, I think the same relationship between, that holds between, let's say, my mind and my body is the same sort of relationship that happens between a story and the players in that story. So you're going from just one more uh, layer of abstraction, and we can, and I think that will be true even for people who don't hold the story to be real. They will still, they can, you can still be part of a story without knowing it. Um, I think it's most most useful to go through through examples here. Um, I mentioned cells earlier. Uh, Can start there because it's very simple. In a cell, you have tons of different organelles. Uh, yeah, let's say you have the mitochondria there. You have uh, some other organelles there, and they're also sort of doing their separate thing. But all of those different enzymes and organelles, uh, they exist at their at their level of, of, of reality. That is very quick. Like the, the, the chemical reactions there occur in like nanoseconds, and uh, it's very very short in time. It's it's, it's very low level. Uh, space and time, but when all of this, all of these enzymes and chemical reactions, are gathered up around the nucleus, like maybe the the uh, mitochondria are having an issue, and they send certain enzymes to the nucleus, and then n- the nucleus will uh, actually gather all of this all of this information that occurs like at low level in space and time, and will gather it into information with like the DNA, like the what was just enzymes and stuff at a low level of being will become information will become something that means something at the level of the DNA if you know the genetics of the cell you'll be, you'll be able to know okay well there's a pattern there there's like something invisible like a form like a, there's a form of the cell that is mediated by the nucleus by the genetic information of the of the cell which will then inform what occurs at the level of you know, the more concrete in time of, of the, the the organelles and the enzymes. So you can see the nucleus is a mediator between the form of the cell, the pattern of the cell. Let's see, you can even say the story of the cell, what the cell will do over time. So the, the nucleus mediates between the story of the cell and its individual organelles and enzymes at a lower level scale. And both of, those are, both of those levels of being are real. You need actually the, the different enzymes and organelles for the information of the cell, for the story of the cell to manifest itself. So you need, you need the concrete for the abstract to manifest itself. Uh, but also, all of the concrete does really need the abstract to also hold together to be not just multiple but to be one. You need all of the different uh, uh, interactions in in the cell to combine meaningfully through the nucleus into meaningful information and that will uh, then create the enzymes necessi- necessary to hold the cell together into one okay so that's just at the level of the cell the same you can see the same sort of thing happening in a let's say a family um. In a, yeah, I have to choose my, my examples because I don't want this to take forever. But yeah, in, in the case of a, you, c- you can take a family. In, in a family, you can have, let's say you have a child over there. You have another child over there. The parent is uh, working over there. That other parent is cooking. You, you have many. You have a problem. With it. You have the many. But the many can become one when they're united into a common pattern. When, let's say, uh, they have the pattern that, okay, at this time we have we have, uh, we, we have uh, dinner at uh, this time during the week, we uh, go to uh, this child's uh, soccer game. At uh, this other time, we do this other thing. So it's possible for the many members in the family to become not just separate members, individual during their things, but to actually become one under the pattern of the family. And typically someone will mediate between those. Let's say uh, in uh, in that family, it's the, the father that sort of organizes things, organizes activities. Well, it means the father is the mediator between the individual members in the family and the abstract pattern of the family. And those two are real. If there wasn't a pattern to the family, the family wouldn't hold together. If if the family didn't really uh, like have dinner on that time and then go to the soccer game on that time and so on, if, if there wasn't a common story, if there wasn't like a set of patterns to all the different members of the family together, the fa- there wouldn't be a family. There would be individual people. It would be spread over time. Maybe the family, maybe different people in the family would like straight row for the family, maybe there would be actually issues. Like the family would actually fragment, if not for this abstract pattern, but you really need both levels. Like you need the concrete members of the family for the pattern to manifest itself. If one of the members, like if, if the members of the family died, the pattern would also not manifest itself. Like you need actually like the concrete for the abstract to manifest itself and you need the abstract to keep the family together as well, to, to keep the individual members into one, to keep the concrete under one abstract. OK, so, and so, so I, 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 I found this pattern in the cell at a low level of being. I found it at the higher level in a family. But that's also true within larger communities with more complex stories as well. Um, so yeah, and I don't know, because um, I'm most familiar with, with Christianity. Uh, don't know if that's okay that I use this example, or if you would prefer something else. Um, uh, no, Christian is fine, as long as you don't go like too deep into theology.
0: Like as, as long as it's understandable, Christian okay. is fine. Okay. Well,
1: yeah. So I think that that will be enough. So there's the basic idea that the same sort of thing happened at the at a higher level in a church, for instance, where all of the different families, put all over a village, for example, that all have their their distinctness, will gather, let's say, once a week at the village church to gather under the same story. And then there's a certain special family. Let's say that like, a few priests will be the, the head of the, the village. What they do is they mediate between the individual members, the individual families, I should say, the mediate between the individual families and the, the story of the parish, uh, the story of, say, of, of the incarnation of Christ. Uh, what, and, and you can see this occurring, w- well, if you, you see concrete examples as well. Let's see, the, the individual members of the family will actually talk to their priests. like They will go to confession. They will tell them the best part of the week, the worst parts of their the weeks. So the priest gets all of this abstract information, all of this uh, abstract. Like, you can see this as potential or matter for the priest. Like He has all of this information in the same way that I see a lots of stuff in front of me right now. And I will... Like cut away some of it. I will take the most salient parts and like contract it into a higher level pattern. Instead of seeing like because there's tons of pixels on my screen right now. If I look at you and you know there are countless interactions happening at the level of my my retina. And I will condense all of this extremely quick stuff into one abstract pattern of C, Tiago over there. So I take abstract stuff. I'm uh, sorry. I take concrete stuff. I condense it into something abstract. And then from this, I will, uh, from this abstract stuff, I will then make something concrete as well. I will uh, speak these words. So from the abstract pattern of the sentence that I hold in my mind, through my mouth and my lungs, I will do very concrete things. I will over space and time, move my lips, move my lungs, and so on, to unfold the abstract stuff that's uh, in my mind. And the priest does the same thing with inspiration to pull them in the in the story of Christ. So he will. Uh, as I said, hear the confessions. He will uh, talk to them about the best parts of the day, the worst part of the day. He will go visit them. He will go walk over the village, see how things are going. So he takes all of this, all of this concrete stuff, he gathers it in, to himself, and tries to make it fit within the story of Christianity. And then, after having looked at this abstract pattern of, all, of how these, uh, abstra- this, abstract, this abstract story that has been you know, going on for thousands of years, how. You can take all this abstract stuff and make it concrete. So the priests will uh, say certain prayers during the mass. They will uh, say certain things when they discuss with their parishioners. Uh, they will maybe start some, some activities around the church and so on to mediate between the abstract story of the parish and the individual members. And then there will be a difference between the people who really believe deeply in in that story and those who don't believe deeply in that story. Uh, but I think there are stories that people can be a part of, like whether they want to or not if you 're in a village where okay let 's say uh, we, can, we can take concrete examples it would be useful there 's sort of a stereotype that women are typically more pious so in a village let's say the, a certain woman would be uh, you 're in a family and maybe like your sister would be super pious like she really believes in all of what the priest says, she believes in a, like all, all of what the Bible teaches and so on she will be more impacted by the story, of course. No, she will uh, she will try to embody those patterns. Like what the priest sh- says she should do, she will actually try to embody it. And conversely also what she lives day to day, she's much more likely to tell the priest because maybe she 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 goes to confession all the time. Maybe she's part of tons of church groups and so she gives lots and lots of, of matter to his pri- to, to her priest. She gives him lots and lots of, of information to, to drop on. and then she's also much more receptive of the stories of the patterns he will tell her but even someone who let's say you're the the lone uh, secret atheist in in the village and you don't really believe in all of that stuff but you will still be part of the story just at the lower level uh, you will still be impacted by all the people that behave according to the story and maybe you'll still have to go to church on sundays or maybe there will still be festivals that are uh, that will pull you into the story whether you want to or not even today in the west like most people don't really believe in uh, Christmas or uh, tons of Christian holidays, but they still have those holidays and they still punctuate the year. So people can still be part of the story just at a lower level if they don't believe uh, it as much. It's even possible for people to just play a subversive part of the, in, in a story. Uh, so people who want to deny a story can end up just being the bad actors in, in a story. This can happen as well. But uh, yeah, so I think, I think that's a broad overview of how I make sense of, of the reality of stories. I think stories can be just as real as, you know, they're an abstract pattern. A story, the story of a community can be just as real as the mind of a person or as the genetic information in a cell.
0: Hmm.
1: Okay, so uh, I think that
0: makes a lot of sense and and I liked a lot of what you said. Although I think there's something that's, to me... Feels like it's missing because I can make a lot of sense from that when I think kind of a typical, at least how I understand something like religion to originate with a non-supernatural uh, origin. Which is man, this gets this complicated. But let's just say, in terms of like the origin. Of, of the ideal, let's say. So like the, there's a group and there's a bunch of social interactions with the group. And so that is the concrete. And then there's, a, there's an abstraction. And then we can call that abstraction, for example, an ideal of behavior. And then and we can call that a, a story as well. And then the story now goes from top bottom and it's instant, 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 instantiated in individuals and it can spread. So that that makes a lot of sense to me of like this, this, this abstraction, and then this, this come down. But the problem is that, that I'm having is I'm not sure because my original question, the the problem that bothers me a lot is that the real seems to originate in the non real, because the the problem is if I have a story that originated uh, in an ideal that originated in behavior, that was already concrete. So it was already there from the beginning. But I'm not sure if that's always the case. A lot of times it seems that there is no concrete from the beginning. Like it's just, I don't know how to say it exactly, but it's just there. Uh, and then somehow when it's apprehended by the individual, it can manifest itself. But it was never manifested before.
1: That, that, that's, that's what yeah. troubles me. Okay, okay. Well, there's, there's this idea that I think it comes from Neoplatonism that Certain truths, certain patterns—you can say, certain stories—they're they're outside of space and time. Like, a uh, common example is mathematics. Okay, so mathematical truths are true; they're real even before they become manifested. Uh, there are patterns that—that's uh, it. Th- there is some. Super abstract mathematical stuff that you know has been discovered in the last few hundred years, and that impacts the way we build bombs or the way we build cell phones and so on there's tons of like mathematical truths that have manifested themselves through mathematicians you know mathematicians who mediate between the patterns the abstract mathematics and the concrete everyday life. those patterns were you know they were you can, you can see that those patterns were real they weren't but they weren't manifested. Uh, a way of, of seeing it is uh, you can try to make sense of it in terms of the old ideas of the ancient Greeks who saw the world in terms of matter and form. Uh, okay, so there's a sense in which matter is real because matter is, is it's here right now in, in space and time. And there's also a sense in which you know, matter is potential for patterns. Um, the, let's say the, the individual particles. In a, in a an atom, their potential for the atom to manifest itself. Um, or you can sit in, to go th- to the uh, other examples I, I talked about, let's say in, in, in a parish, in a village, the, the individual members are potential for the pattern of the parish to manifest itself. Or in the family, the individuals are potential for the pattern of the family to, to manifest itself. Okay, And there's a, you, it's like you can look at reality in two ways then. Like you can try to see it bottom up or top down. Uh, but both are actually true. Uh, so from what you were saying earlier, like I think you had the sense that if you look at it bottom up, like if you look at the fact that uh, you, you, were, you were talking about the ideal, like the ideal was constructed bottom up from, like in, some, in some sense, you can see that the ideal was constructed bottom up from the people. Uh, and then the ideal sort of feels uh, uh, goes back down to explain the future behavior of the tribe, for instance, but you can also see it as the fact that the ideal was always there in the abstract, like mathematics. But it's just now that the, the community has reached a level where they can reach that pattern, then the pattern can manifest itself. Um, so in terms of a story, I would say that let's say the, the story was already real. No, it it was it was real, but it was outside of space and time, before the matter got to a point where it could manifest itself. Does that help?
0: Yeah, I, th- I think that helps a fair bit. And and what it just said, like the very last couple sentences, I think that makes that makes a lot of sense with something else that I was thinking because uh, that I've been thinking lately, which is like the I've always like the story of of Christ, for example. I always saw it has This is a bit talked about, and I'm not sure if exactly you'll agree with me because I have, I have different views than you. But mm-hmm. but it's more like Christ would be the embodiment. like Because the reason is, like for example, we say that Christ mediates between heaven and earth, let's say, and that it's between fully human and fully God and, and, and fully divine. And the way I thought about it was that it's more like uh, An ideal is real, like for example, like in in the mythology, for example. So we we have stories, and and those patterns are are real. Um, and then there's people, and and obviously people are real. It's our everyday life. And what happened with with Christ, for example, or or in or, or in the typical religious, um, I don't know, religious figure, I guess, is when those things match in the sense that. It's it's funny because it's it's exactly how you said it, but I never thought it on those terms. It's 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 almost like the story was there all along, but then it managed to match in a in a physical form, and I think that's what gives the this this idea of 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 Christ being being both. It's like the so th- there's the story, but then the reason why there's significance of Jesus. So I, th- I think this is part of why. For example, we can we can talk about the value of mythology in like in in like a Jungian sense ex- exactly. But you don't need to have like a specific person that is that has any like metaphysical religious significance. Like you can just say that there's patterns in stories. Those patterns are useful. It reflects how we view and interact with the world. Uh, but the, the the thing about Christ in specific and 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 other religious figures is that it. It's, it managed to come down from the level of abstraction to our world. And so you can say that that's a supernatural thing, but th- th- that depends how you view it. You can just, if you view it at the at, at, at level of ideas per se, which is how I tend to view it, then that makes a
1: lot of sense. Yeah, because the, the supernatural, the natural supernatural distinction really went off the rails over time. It's terrible what we did. Like Thomas Aquinas introduced the distinction in a way that made a lot of sense, with the sort of it's not too far from the sort of metaphysics I've been explaining in terms of you know, layers of being layers of matter and form uh, and it made sense for Aquinas it was sort of a so you had it it was fairly smooth like the 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 integration between the natural and the supernatural so we're in the clearly in the natural world but we can ascend to the supernatural as we reach more and more abstract layers of being and we can never reach the, the, the most abstract one, like the, the, the highest one, the logos, like the, the story of all stories, you can say, the, the story that gathers everything, the story from which everything emanates and to which everything uh, emerges, like that story, we're not able to reach it. Uh, there's sort of an infinity of layers between it and us, but that is the supernatural. So the, what happened over time is as we lost our symbolism, as we lost you know, our ability to see the different layers of being and the symbols between, between them, we just kept collapsing the, the supernatural down to the point where in, in certain, certain Christian circles, like people have become materialists. Like they, they try to see the, the supernatural as just another material world. It's almost like the caricatures of Plato that you see. Well, okay, we have our regular natural material world. And then there's also another dimension, another material world where God is, and that's the supernatural. And the, somehow the two can sometimes touch. But that's it. So, But if you go back to the way Aquinas made the distinction between natural and supernatural, you get something much smoother that makes much more sense. And that's a lot like what I just told you. And if you go like before in in Christianity, or if you go towards Eastern Christianity, they don't even talk about this, like the natural supernatural. For them, it's like between the divine and the the, the world. And again, it's a a hierarchy between those. And we never reach the top level because we're just human. But it doesn't prevent the highest like the the story of all stories, to come down and manifest itself across all of those layers in Christ.
0: Yeah, that's very helpful. Um, um, okay, so I think maybe we should wrap it up. It has been,
1: it has been minutes, quite long. Yeah, <laughs> it's been over two hours. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. Um, this was
1: this was really fun. I appreciate talking to you. You had lots of good questions. It was uh yeah it was nice.
0: Yeah. Same. I really enjoyed it and. Uh, uh, and I, I really liked t- talking about you, especially because like there 's a lot of common ground which, which is mm-hmm. always good because it makes a productive for conversation but th- also there's a lot of stuff that um, that you th- there 's a lot of things in your thought that, that are new to me or at least they 're not very explicit so mm-hmm. it 's a good combination of like of like know what you 're talking about but also having novelty, nothing that works yeah. pretty well, and it helped clarifying a lot of mm-hmm. things in my head.
1: Yeah, that was awesome.
0: Okay. Um, so, yeah. So, thank you very much once again. And, and thank I you, Sego. Hope you have a great day.
1: You too. Bye.
0: Uh-huh.